0: At the best of times, healthcare can prove challenging to deliver. While demand continues to steadily increase, resourcing may not be able to move at the same pace. And that is where clinical innovation comes in. Looking at things from a different angle, investing in new technology, or supporting the workforce to work at their fullest scope, these projects are the heart
1: and soul of the theme, Solving the Puzzle.
2: So hi, I'm Laureen Heinz. I'm very privileged to be here today with um, some amazing colleagues. Um, so Dr Theodore Chamberlain uh, is our clinical lead for Hospital in the Home. We have Addy who is uh, the lead for Hospital in the Home in Northwest. And um, we have Melissa McCusker who is Um, essential to the Metro South service and leads that service. So what we're going to do today is we're going to give you a little bit of an overview. I'm sure Hospital in the Home is not new. Like, you know, we've been talking about this for years now. So what we want to do is just give you a little bit of an overview, just in case it is new to you. Um, And then we're going to run through and um, actually ask the teams that actually deliver this every day, you know, some of their successful implementation strategies. Because if we are moving towards more Hospital in the Home, we're looking for um, additional virtual care, we need to know what those keys to success are because otherwise we're all stumbling over the same stuff right so i'll somehow click here um, so hospital in the home in queensland is acute care substitution so this is for people that are clinically unwell these are people that require medical governance monitoring or treatment daily Um, and that actually it substitutes what they would otherwise get in hospital. So it is really an acute care service. There are lots of other amazing services, as we've heard today, that deliver care in the home. But this is really kind of the pointy end of what you can do at home. Now, Ted and I just had the most amazing experience of talking with some um, children Uh, For juiced TV around what hospital in the home is and sort of their concepts about how How it happens and you know, how do you fit the hospital in your home and everything so it was so good But I put the challenge out to you all there's a desire out there There is a massive desire to have this acute care at home and it's up to us as clinicians To make sure we actually get this off the ground because we're doing well in Queensland, but not well enough because
0: I'd like to point out that Lorraine promised them a hovercraft
2: Yeah, no worries. And and I think we were delivering care on the moon at one point. But anyway, (laughs) through virtual care, you'll be glad to know. So our voice colleagues, we want virtual hospital and home on the moon. So um, it is, you know, there's some formal criteria around, you know, meeting uh, patients' needs uh, in the community. So we do need to make sure it's safe. Patients love this. There is no question of it. it's really disappointing though, we did a recent kitchen table and we found out that 60% of the patients that were um, interviewed, who all have different varying degrees of, um, of illness, but also come from a diverse um, backgrounds, 60% of them didn't even know what hospital in home was. It's pretty sad this is 2022. So challenges out there. So. If we are having a look at um, I guess points of difference for Queensland like we are very pure in Queensland as to what we do for hospital in the home. It is only acute care substitution. We really um, enforce that quite strongly. There's method to that madness. We've got hospitals at the moment that are absolutely chock-a-block. We can't get squeeze another person in. We've got people in corridors, we've got people in cupboards, we've got people everywhere. We need them in their home receiving this treatment so In other states they do some sort of outpatient activity, they do chemotherapy, which we all do as outpatients here. But hospital in the home is acute care substitution and currently over um, 350 patients a day are managed under hospital in the home. Again, we can do much better. So what we need to do is make sure that the principles are clear. It needs to be of value to the patient. So this is not about cost saving, this is not about saving beds, this is about good quality care. It needs to be able to be safely delivered in the home We need to be flexible and agile in the care that we're able to deliver and how we deliver that. It needs to be accessible to all, um, and that means if you're living in rural and remote, we need to up those services. We need to make them available, notwithstanding that if somebody lives, as Ted mentioned just before, if somebody is living 200 k's away from the local facility, we might need to adapt what hospital in the home might be, particularly for rural and remote. It needs robust and very stringent governance around it. And we also need a very skilled workforce. So we have lots of amazing clinicians that find this a really inspiring way to care for people. And it's an absolute privilege to deliver care in people's home. So from a performance perspective, we thought we'd, you know, how's Queensland going? So in a recent um, review that was done by Health Roundtable, um, they, looked at what hospital in the home so we were actually leading in in things like heart failure urinary tract infections cellulitis um, shock drg so i guess that's sort of some septicemia we are increasing our activity you know sort of consistently we did invest um, for additional hospital in the home services, but we have actually seen that impact on the ground. Um, so most of the metropolitan services are well established. They, you know, it takes time to build, and now they're very stable in what they can deliver, and we are seeing some non-metro services increasing their activity. At the end of the day, we don't have enough beds, and we need to make sure that we can offer this opportunity to people. So. Hospital in the home is quite big in Queensland. So all uh, all hospital and health services except um, Central Queensland have a hospital in home service. But I, anyone who's from Central Queensland, we would love to get something established there with you. Um, we do really need to, you know, look at the practicalities uh, and the rules that apply for hospital in the home in Brisbane may not fit out there. That growth funding that we sent out through the um, Care for Queensland strategy has actually made an impact. We've been able to secure up medical positions across the state for most of the services, as well as some allied health. So that's really opens your scope for what you're actually able to deliver. So I'm gonna hand over to Ted, and he's gonna talk a little bit about what diverse communities we care for.
0: Just back to... Lorraine's point. Across the nation, you know, Hith has been stable or decreasing, but Queensland continues to grow, and we do lead on quite a few DRGs, and we lead by a significant component. We deal with diverse communities. We look after frail, elderly, adults, pediatrics, and everything in between. Hith in Queensland is a very, very broad church. We've seen HITH services develop special cohorts, mental health patients, maternity, palliative care, geriatric, rehab. HITH is expanding its scope, its practice, its numbers, and the communities that it serves. Part of this is that we actually have dedicated multidisciplinary teams with medical leads, allied health, nursing staff. What this does is really improve the capacity of a HITH service to be flexible, and deliver care right across the spectrum. The interesting thing is, if you look at a DRG with a normal ward, you know you list the top ten DRGs. You got eighty to ninety percent of their volume right there. You do that with a HITH ward. The top ten DRGs are about forty to fifty percent. HITH has a long tail things we look after you know 60% of our business is in those small numbers so you need to have flexibility clinical flexibility and the clinical ability to provide the appropriate service for that patient now, what's Heath doing in Queensland? We're trying a lot of new things. We're doing virtual care, remote patient monitoring. We stood up for COVID-19. We're developing some direct referral pathways from anyone who wants to refer to us, GP, ED, residential aged care, QAS, God, you know, if I had a dentist who could send it to me, I would want to set up a pathway for that. <laughs> You know, we're doing trying to work on integrated shared care models. Okay, where we can actually split services across the divide, because part of um, you know my vision, at least, you know, is the seamless care of a patient across primary, tertiary, public, and private divides. And to do that, we need to develop real partnerships and changing of sharing of information. We're looking and supporting new models of care, maternity, mental health, and we're definitely looking at expanding service scope. You know, talking to the kids, you know, when we we're asking serious questions of what, you know, health and hospitals will look like in 30 or 50 years, I really can't say, but I can, I can tell you this, that to survive, we'll have to be innovative, and that means providing care closer to home, and in the um, patient's environment. That is the future. That is inevitable. So what's Heath doing? Well, we're evolving and identifying a lot of new opportunities for improvement. What happens is that we're looking for increased virtual care utilization. We're trying to expand in rural and remote, and adapt all the processes and procedures, and concentrating on picking up more care in outer hospitals. Now, we're doing that successfully. Biggest increase in Heath in Queensland has been outside the metropolitan areas. You know, because for the reasons of, you know, one, a low base, but two, because of the tightness of their financial environment, they are really looking at innovative ways. It's always the barbarians on the periphery that are more adaptable. We've made sure that we've simplified the referral processes across the state. We've put in some funding initiatives. And you know we're really pushing service expansion. You know everybody is hithable. If it's high quality care, that it's a benefit to the patient and the family, and it can be safely done, that's a hith patient. Okay? That is a hith patient. Those are the three criteria. We've increased staffing to support the expansion. That is, you know, putting allied health, direct medical governance in, and we're looking at you know pediatrics and the subacute component. Now, what I'd really like to do is get the people who really do the job up and talking. So, um, Mel, are you or Allison going to talk on this? I'm
2: going to get Allison to come and talk. Um, Alison's my nurse unit manager for my Redland team. We decided to embark on. We run a traditional adult service. We were going to introduce paediatrics, and other than my own children, little children scare me. Uh, Alison was not scared at all and embraced that. So we integrated a paediatric service into our adult team, and then we also threw on to Alison Gemma Heath, thanks to some extra funding. So she's done all the work, not me. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Um, so yeah, about mid-2020 I was approached by the paediatric consultant at the um, Redlands Hospital about um, could we support some of the paediatric patients in the community that were in a gap area. Um, children, Queensland Children's Hospital were providing a HIF type service into our borders but there were areas further in of course that they couldn't manage to get to. So. Um, I've got a midwifery and child health background, so that, as Melissa said, it didn't scare me a lot because I thought you can't hurt them, they're pretty pretty versatile kids. Um, And so I initially talked with Melissa, who's very keen on any innovations and new ideas about could we look at working on this one, and also our consultant for our adult cohort, and he was more than happy to let Dougie take the lead as the medical governance for us. Um, Melissa through some of her contacts and networks made approaches to the Queensland Children's Hospital um, and kind of sort of connected in with them for me and then we formed a bit of a steering group with like any microbial stewardship pharmacist at our hospital, um, the the director of nursing for Logan Redlands because it's a a shared across two sites. We also had a CNC from the paediatric ward at Redlands who was very proactive and very um, helpful um, in connecting us with the various training that we needed to deal with the little ones. I was very fortunate to have a core group of staff who'd worked in HIF for quite a while with adults and I'd worked with them for a while so they were happy to trust me a little bit to spread our wings a bit and get them some training and get their confidence built up and I was happy to go out with them and hold their hand if they needed that so you you really as a numb need to be willing to to take them and go with them on the journey. Um, And once we'd worked out some pathways, we did initially pick a small group of DRGs um, more around the comfort of the nursing staff, something they were familiar with. Um, that we could trial and we're now at the point of just opening up to any any patients case by case that they want to refer to us from the hospital. We're also looking at making more networking with the Queensland Children's Hospital helping them out with managing their workloads if they need it, if they've got patients in our area, um, because I know from we've had some of them come and um, visit our team and have a chat with us about what they do and see how we've set up the service. And their workloads are quite heavy, so we're happy to help out. So we'll be looking at doing some of that sort of stuff with them as well. Um, And we did initially develop a prescribing pathway that was um, the same as Queensland Children's Hospital to make sure that we were matching um, for the safety of the um, patients. And so, yeah, looking to the future for us now, um, yeah, any DRG we're gonna look at. We're also looking at reducing the age range. Initially, it was from five and up. Um, and now we've got our confidence, um, we're going to drop it down to two and up. And I did do an expression of interest initially amongst our team to find which nurses were keen to embrace this and willing and happy to sort of do this new challenge. So I got about 50% of our team are trained to do paediatric hiss. So that tends to cover us for the seven days a week. Um, and those girls have done all the online training and the basic resuscitation things and then Naomi um, supported us with some other learnings to do with pain assessment of children and strapping cannulas and all those sorts of things. So overall um, it's been nice and steady. We haven't been overwhelmed with referrals which I think has been great initially. We've just had a steady flow of people coming through and so we're looking forward to sort of planning a few more meetings and expanding the service um, a bit further. Um, So that's mainly what we did for the paediatric side. Um, We're also down to talk about COVID health, which is another initiative um, that Melissa um, was allocated the role of onboarding. Um, because of all, as you know, all the bed shortages and the COVID patients out in the community and the the hospitals being totally overwhelmed by um, patients presenting to ED Um, with some funding. um, Melissa set up a COVID HIF service um, based at 8 Mile Plains um, to try and reduce some of that pressure on the hospitals and also support the patients a little bit more in their home because many of the patients uh, that we, target for COVID hit have complex medical conditions and there's a degree of anxiety when they're unwell about am I okay or do I need to go to hospital so you know there was a higher presentation rate for some of these people so the aim was to try and support them more in the home with some monitoring and uh, they were given some um, monitoring equipment and they had some virtual telehealth um, conversations with the teams. The teams were set up with physios, OTs, social workers, triaging. Um, they all had crash courses in triaging and assessing the, um, you know, to work out who should come onto Heath or who would be a COVID well clinic. Um, And those that came on to HITH had the usual daily interactions via the telehealth with the HITH nurses and also the oversight of the infectious diseases consultants at um, the Princess Alexandra Hospital and that's been going well. Um, we as a service out at Redlands and at the other hubs occasionally will go out and do some like, blood collections on their behalf because they are a multidisciplinary team. Not all of them can go do that sort of thing. So it even um, it's sort of spread out to our other hubs in Metro South that we're all sort of helping the covid test team as we can. Um, and I'm not sure numbers wise, but I think they're still pretty busy with workloads. work lights. <laughs> um, so at, I suppose working out whether it will be business as usual for the future or where that will lead we don't know but um, that's certainly something that um, Melissa's done a lot of work towards setting up and seems to be going well for that one um, and that's meeting the need of the community and keeping them in the homes and giving reassurance to those people with the complex health problems that need support so the less anxiety for them. Um, And the final topic I'm talking about is the Gemar hith uh, we call it out at Redlands, the geriatric um, services. So probably late last year, um, with some statewide funding, um, it was look at setting up a geriatric service out in the Redlands area. UE2PA had geriatric services, a Gemar hith in uh, the hospitals, so um, patients who were frail with falls or delirium or polypharmacy issues who were having protracted stays in hospitals because um, and were better off, um, research shows they were better off to be back at home in their own environment. Um, The funding was aimed at getting patients out of the hospital quicker in that frail age group and providing them with some more intensive support in the home for up to a couple of weeks if they needed. So it would be OTs, physios, social workers, dietitian, nutritionists and the nursing side. Um, So that commenced in November. Um, And the funding was allocated to a community services team. So they're based at 8 Mile Plains um, and that's the allied side of the service. And then the nursing side of the service is based over at Redlands. And we also have a geriatrician that oversees the service as well. So we, as per his patients, we have um, clinical handovers in the morning and the afternoons for all the patients. We pull from the hospital beds, trying to move patients out a little bit quicker. Um, Most of the patients we get, as I was saying, they're they're frail, multiple complex medical conditions, um, deliriums, um, medication, polypharmacy um, related, where their blood pressures are we're on five different blood pressure medications and they're getting hypertensive. So we get them out and monitor them in the home. And um, we do case conferencing. And um, overall, the care family members have certainly said they find this an excellent service. We connect them in once they're finished on Gemma hith with ongoing services and supports. Uh, we, we provide cognitive assessments for the families to make future care decisions. Um, so I think overall, um, for the frail elderly, they're a lot safer at home uh, than they are in hospital and the families certainly think that too. So I think the Gemar service is really excellent for that type of care. Um, and future for that is, yeah, getting bigger and better. At the moment we have about 10 beds allocated for the Gemahis and we're pretty full now. Um, COVID initially at the beginning of the year did impact a little bit because a lot of patients were getting diverted from ED to some of the private hospitals, but now we're back up and full steam ahead at the
3: moment.
0: So Alison, you've obviously put in three very different models of care in a very short period of time. So the point again, the question is, what tips are advice? What tips or advice would you give this audience on how to set up a new model of care? in a fast way, even in a conservative environment like a South East Queensland Metro?
1: Um, I think you need to get your, your find out who, who are the key people you need to get and get them all together really quickly and also find out who within your team who could champion, who are happy to be champions for the service you're trying to set up. Um, you need to make sure you've had a gap analysis of the training needs of the, the staff that you had and have some good clinical support from a CNC to help you with um, working through that training needs and then that imparts the confidence on the staff that we're not just throwing it together, that they're giving they're giving them the training they need and giving them the confidence they need to be able to go out and see these patients in the community. So, um, certainly that really helped with the staff getting on board with this um, and allowing them time to um, get that training, not just throwing it at them, uh, you know, in a hurry. Um, and having a child health background, I think was it's, it, it's the leader sort of, of implementing it within the team, it was good that I'd worked with them for about five or six years. They knew me, I knew them. Um, and also that I did have a bit of a paediatric background, so I think that helped. They felt a little bit confident that I wasn't gonna throw something at them I didn't think we were gonna hurt children with. Um, and certainly with the CNC Naomi Flanity support and Dougie Thompson's support, we got a real good vibe that it's okay, you're gonna do great, it's not a problem. So that positive feedback from the paediatric team was
0: really great too. Yeah, thank you, awesome. Alison. Right. Okay. I had some discussions with Kate Davies in Children's Health and she agrees with you very strongly, the need to have that strong pediatric component to seduce an adult health service. I am going to introduce Abdi, who, whoops. Anyone know which button I need to push? <laughs> Listen, I love Abdi for a couple of reasons. One, she's a great clinician, two, she's a great human being. And third, she comes from Mount Isa and has set up a HITS service implementing complex technology in a patient cohort that you would think would be very difficult to do it. So great clinician, great innovator. Please, Abby, tell them how good work you do.
3: Um, I'm pressed for time, so I won't take everyone's time. Um, I'm Abby George. Um, We're at Mount Isa Hospital. I'm And um, in 2021, we went live with our HIF. And I won't go too much into what HIF is, but the difference with our HIF was we went live with remote patient monitoring, RPM, which was amazing. Um, So in 2013, I'm sorry, 2021 March, we had the opportunity through Better Health Queensland to go live. And for all our patients with HIF, we all trialed. The remote patient monitoring devices, which means that patients that met our criteria were given a tablet and biometric devices, and we wanted to understand patients' engagement, what it would involve for them to be involved fully in their care. So, what were we trying to achieve? We're trying to look at how, if with the RPM, regardless of their um, ethnicity, are willing to support self-management goal setting health coaching behavior change support care navigation timeless care patients staying connected and proactive intervention i would say it was difficult because imagine if you're in hospital and you have the criteria and doctor says a group of nurses are going to come and look after you after you at home and then we turn up with all the devices so of course everybody's like oh can i do this so there was some reluctance and there was some shock, but I'll tell you that, particularly with our indigenous patients, they were willing to engage, which was great. But what we had to do was to hold their hand through the process. There is this idea that your level of health literacy, technological abilities are key, being involved in RPMs, but that is not true. We found that, particularly with our indigenous patients, if we had the time to talk them through it, Hold their hands through it, they would engage. And uh, I can remember my colleagues telling me that, "Adi, you won't find any of the devices. I can tell you since 2021 till date, we've not lost anything but charges, really. <laughs> um, but we're happy to replace those. But the important thing for us was the patient satisfaction and the patient's engagement, which was like 100%. We know that not all patients will be willing and will have that readiness towards RPM but we are willing to engage and show them the difference if we can hold their hands through that process. Now, I would say that for our clientele, patients, patients that would need care for less than three days will not benefit for RPMs because it takes us almost three, four days to teach them how to use it. But other patients, particularly those that had other chronic if we had to hold their hands through the RPMs, show them that if you're compliant with your drugs your blood pressure is better. If you're compliant with your drugs, your blood sugar can better. If you're compliant with your drugs, your weight could be better. They could see it and they're willing to engage. So the gentleman on the far right, I'll call him Mr. J. This gentleman came to hit uh, four weeks of uh, bacteremia requiring Baxter pumps, a million and one comorbidities, was never compliant. The first three days, he was reluctant when we gave him the RPMs. He was like, no, I can't read, I can't do this, I don't want this. And every day, we took the devices to him. And he would use his medications. And he saw that his blood pressure was getting better. He saw that his weight was getting better. He saw that his blood sugar was getting better. On the fifth day, he told us to leave the devices. And I can tell you, before we got there at eight o'clock, he had taken his drugs, he has checked his blood sugar, checked all his um, um, biometrics. And he was willing to engage because we took our time to hold his hand through it. And that is a testimony for me. And we are really grateful that we did this. Thank you.
0: As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn about the wonderful work of Queensland's frontline clinicians. To continue the conversation, head on over to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and let us know of any pockets of excellence you think deserve to be showcased. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Clinical Excellence Queensland.